0: This is Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Man, what a week. But then, what would I expect? I mean, given we're living in a period of historic change. I know I've been warning about a monetary crisis, energy crisis, food shortages for ages. But you know what? Look around. They're all happening right now. At least we'll get to say we're living in a period where, well, Europe's unraveling, for example. I'll talk more with Victor Adair about that. I mean, look at their financial problems. Still debt problems in Greece, Spain, and Italy. My goodness. I mean, governments all over the world are under pressure, and it is thanks. Back to energy, back to fertilizer, back to food. As John Lennon famously asked, you say you want a revolution? Well, I think they're brewing in about 20 countries right now. And speaking of food, by the way, I'm thrilled to have with me Sylvain Charlebois. He's the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. They're Canada's leading experts on food prices, and we just heard this week, food prices are still rising in that 9% range. But it's a lot more than just the rising cost for farmers. That represents maybe 20% of what we pay uh, at the grocery store. I mean, there's so much more that's getting impacted. I I just think this is a must-listen interview, given it's one of the number one concerns of Canadians, is the rising cost of food. Aussie Jurek, by the way, is going to be by to talk about the latest real estate tax grab. We have a shocking stat that I think helps, ex- well, it doesn't, I don't think, it does help explain why it's impossible to just say, hey, let's ramp up oil production at the drop of a hat. And you know what? I don't think you'll hear this anywhere else. We have the latest inflation take with Mike Levy, more on the markets with Victor, and you'll love my favorite tech guy, Brent Holiday, head of Garibaldi Capital, by the way. He's going to join me in just a couple of minutes to talk about not only what's cool in tech, we'll get to that, but the changing investment landscape when it comes to technology companies. But first, I want to talk about healthcare. I want to talk about the BC Court of Appeals ruling that says patients who are forced to wait a medically unacceptable time, medically dangerous amount of time for treatment, do not have the right to use their after-tax dollars to seek care from a private clinic. Now, by the way, that's not the case if you're a federal prisoner. No, no, you can access a private clinic, as can members of the military, RCMP, injured unionized workers, and wait for it, judges astoundingly, even the judge who ruled in this case has had surgery at a private clinic. And I think it's also noteworthy that members of the BC NDP who are so jubilant at the decision to prevent you and I, you and me from using private clinic to alleviate discomfort and pain, have used the private Cambie Street Surgery Center. But you and your family don't have the right, no matter how damaging it would be to your health or psychological well-being, to seek care. As Justice Janet Winteringham states in her 2018 ruling granting a temporary injunction against the BC NDP's governments to prevent patients from using a private clinic, in quotes, some patients will suffer serious physical and or psychological harm while waiting for health services. September 2020, Justice John Steve acknowledged that some patients facing long wait times suffer from prolonged pain and increased risk of deterioration. A key point, by the way, in this BC Court of Appeals ruling is it does not dispute that patients suffer, even die, while waiting for treatment. But how could they dispute it? 11,581 patients in Canada died in 2021 while waiting for surgeries. Since April 2018, total 26,875 patients have died waiting for surgery or diagnostic scans on waiting lists. So on the one side, you have patients demanding the right to protect their own personal health when the system has failed them. And on the other side, you have the BC NDP, you have the federal liberals saying no, along with the BC Court of Appeals, saying that the system is more important than your individual health. I guess the question is, what do you think about it? You'd better decide before it's you or a loved one waiting a medically unacceptable time for treatment. Would you favor being allowed to use your after-tax dollars to get treated at a private clinic? The court ruling says we can't allow patients who are suffering access to private care. It's because we want to protect the system. Well, that's beyond absurd. What system? Right now, it's estimated over a million Canadians are waiting for treatment. Before the pandemic, 50 to 60,000 Canadians a year were forced to leave the country to get their medical care. Is this really what the court and the government are protecting? I want you to be clear on this. They're protecting a system that, according to the Institute of Health Information, their study, looking at wait times in 11 Western countries, ranked Canada, their healthcare system, dead last. The Commonwealth Fund survey in 2021 found Canada ranked dead last among 11 developed nations when it comes to receiving care within four hours in an emergency department, dead last among 11 developed countries, when it came to see a specialist within four weeks of referral, dead last when it came to non-emergency surgery after it's recommended. And this is the system they're protecting. Again, please note, it's a system the judge or the health care minister or his cabinet colleagues have, has, have the opportunity, uh, they don't have to use it. No, they can go to a private clinic. I want to make one other thing clear. And I really want you to hear this distinction. These results have nothing to do, and we've had them for decades, but they have nothing to do with the people working in healthcare. Nothing whatsoever. It's about the system they're working in, the system that provides no financial incentive to treat patients. So a lot of times they're not treated. There are two other things that I want you to be clear on. No matter where you stand on the issues, you should understand. Rationing healthcare through waiting lists is government policy in order to control costs. It's government policy. It's also government policy to restrict the number of doctors in medical schools. Again, that's to control costs. After all, if you had more doctors, there would be more doctor's visits, more tests to run. And that costs money. Let me finish by coming back to the shocking point that opponents of private care, including the Court of Appeal, admit. This is the point to get. People are suffering. They're dying while waiting for treatment. And they say the system is more important. They're willing to have people die waiting for treatment. And it's all in the service of ideology. An anti-private care ideology that's rejected in every country in the Western world. I mean, my goodness, in Cuba, they have private health care. But listen to the ruling by the Supreme Court Justices McLaughlin, Major, and Basterash in the Shawili case. This is after a year of study. In quotes, Many Western democracies that do not impose a monopoly on the delivery of health care have successfully delivered to their citizens medical services that are superior to and more affordable than the services that are presently available in Canada. The evidence refutes the government's theoretical contention that a prohibition on private insurance is linked to maintaining quality public health care, end of quote. Hey, like, don't get me wrong, though. It's your prerogative to push to prevent people from alleviating their own suffering or that of a loved one by accessing a private clinic. And polls suggest that something, it depends on the poll, but more recently, uh, something like 25%, but it might be as high as 40% of Canadians agree that the system is more important than an individual's health. Maybe no surprise. I mean, there's always casualties on the ideological battlefield. Although I say it would be interesting to see their ideology tested, if it was them or a loved one waiting a medically unacceptable time for treatment. Well, I guess we got the answer from numerous politicians and others, like the judge. No, they didn't wait in line. One of the things I've been pleased about on Money Talks is we've been talking about the inflation game for well in advance of, of the central bank's recognition. I mean, it's been, well, now it's something about 14, 15 months ago, we started to ring the alarm bell. But one of the things I'm also critical of is, you know, we're, I, I don't really care about the broad inflation numbers other than its impact on interest rate policy. I'm interested in the ones like food, shelter, and uh energy prices because you can't avoid them what we're not going to eat food and that's number one on my list tell me what's happening in the food well to do that i go to what i think is uh, the leading uh, anal- analysis going on in this country is from dalhousie university the director of the agri food analytics department is with me sylvain charlebois uh, sylvain first of all we do
1: appreciate you taking the time and i bet has your job ever
0: been more interesting
1: uh, Interesting and terrifying at mm-hmm. once, uh, I, at the same time, I guess. Uh, well, it, we've been busy the last three years, obviously, because yeah. uh, we had the empty shells at the very beginning of the pandemic, and people wanted to know more about the supply chain, how things work, and we were gladly uh, offering uh, data, information to Canadians. But of course, over the last six uh, to eight months, uh, another uh, menace has risen, and that's the Food inflation menace. Uh, this problem affecting everyone, uh, and and of course, so we've been at we've been basically uh, ask uh, we, a lot of people are asking questions about why are food prices going up, and so yeah, eight months ago we were uh, forecasting uh, food prices to go up by as much as seven percent, and at the time we were uh, we were called as being alarmist. And here we are uh, several months later at 9.7%. So, uh, yeah, unfo- unfortunately, our, our, our forecasting has been accurate for last 12 years. Uh, and I do say, unfortunately, because this time around, we we, we were expecting a, a huge hit for, for families.
0: Well, you know, we, we had been talking about on Money Talks back as early as October or no, September, because we were getting warnings from fertilizer com- companies, you know, nitrogen based, especially with the, the lack of natural gas, those prices going up. And, you know, we recognize that it's going to be a huge problem. So, you know, we've had a tendency to focus to. M- well, a lot. I was going to say too much. I don't think so on that shortage and the huge bump in fertilizer prices. And uh, maybe I know too many farmers, but I've certainly uh, been, you know, worried about them because diesel prices, fertilizer prices, presto, you've got some real problems there. And I'm, but there's so much more to that food chain. So much more when you, when what you guys do, as I said, boy, it was in December, you issued your big warning. You said, hey, look, family of four, Look, upwards of $1,000, and that was before the Dairy Commission got their bumps in, in milk and butter and stuff like that. I mean, it was a prescient call, an important call, but as I say, where, where are we at right now? I mean, are these now food prices entrenched? I'm not saying about the escalating 9.7% compound, you know, but it just seems that across the board I'm looking, I don't see much chance we're going to have some sort of big drop in food prices for the consumer.
1: I don't think so. Now, of course, uh, this week we'll 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 hear from Statistics Canada about June, and we are expecting more ugly numbers. Uh, in fact, for food inflation, we're expecting uh, a number north of ten percent. Uh, we heard from the U.S. last year twelve point four percent at the grocery store. So those are huge numbers. Um, but uh, we are expecting things to uh, – things have, are calming down, actually, at the grocery store. Many sections of the grocery store, things aren't as rocky as they used to earlier in the year. The only exception, I would say, is dairy. I mean, dairy is about to get hit by another hike, a 2.5% hike, which will be implemented into the fall as kids go back to school. So we are expecting, really, dairy products to be remain expensive. Bakery as well overall uh supply chains are starting to 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 work on problems we've seen the backlogs and all that it's costing less prices are coming down a little bit energy costs are coming down as well so those are all good news now prices will continue to rise but not at the same rate. So the food inflation rate will start to drop, we believe by the end of Q4, which is in December. An important point you're making though, because uh, I sort of have this vision. I don't want, I'm not putting
0: words in your mouth that you're not saying this, I am. But we'll get a lower inflation rate and the central bank or the politicians will say, look at us, but we'll make a mistake. Of course, it's the base effect has changed. You know what they're comparing it to. They're now comparing it to numbers we've had in the last year. And that's one, and it's not, actually that prices are dropping it's just the rate of increase is slowing down
1: that's right exactly and, and that's important to uh, to remind the audience uh, i mean in fact i think we've we've demonized food inflation actually you need food inflation really because you want in order to uh make sure that our food is of quality and we have access to food you need food inflation the sweet spot is anywhere between 1.5 to 2.5% in Canada. Uh, At 9.7%, you're far away from that zone. So that's why it needs to go down as soon as possible. And it will eventually go down.
0: Let's talk, I mean, as I say, I emphasize the farm price or what's happened at the farm. Let's walk through though, because of course, uh, the inflation prices, I'm thinking, and I know it's simplistic, but man, just transporting from the farm you know that's going to push prices up or the manufacturing process uses energy so that pushes prices up uh, you know and, and other commodities impacting that so maybe walk us through a little bit about these other uh, cost factors
1: yeah so there's there's energy of course transportation uh, the big one that uh, people may not appreciate is labor when you have no labor uh, or if you don't have access to the proper labor you end up wasting more cuz th- what's different between uh, a a supply chain related to uh, the automotive sector versus food is that you have, you are dealing with perishable ingredients. So you lose a lot of products along the way. If you're basically leaving stock on a, uh, a dock somewhere or it's, or that food actually spends more time on a truck. Uh, many companies have lost inventory uh, across the supply chain, whether it's coming to a plant or uh getting to a to a to a store so it's been complicated and and moving products either on land or on on water has cost more so that's one thing the other thing that uh that concerns me is the currency uh and unlike many Canadians i was actually happy that the bank of canada did increase its uh it's uh it's raised by one percent because it actually supports our our currency. If you look at the Canadian dollar, it was starting to tank a little bit, which really concerned me because we do import a lot of products. We could have actually seen the center of the store of many imports becoming more expensive as a result of that. But now we're seeing a central bank in Canada supporting our currency, which will actually make our currency a non story which is super important right now
0: politicians have a tendency uh, of waiting in and saying so and so should just lower their prices you know just sort of some blanket they should just lower their prices <laughs> now yeah. you know I, I and please uh sh- share with me your expertise but you know to the degree to that like the farmer watches his diesel price go up he watches uh he or she watches um you know the fertilizer costs explode. To what degree do they set prices or or are they just having to accept prices and lower cost margins, for example, with the exception of the Dairy Commission?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Farmers are price takers. Uh, They've always been price takers and that will remain as such. Uh, Price taking economics uh, can be cruel because especially when inflation is at 10 percent, because. Uh, it's like the bullwhip effect. Uh, a 5% at, at on the farm will look more like a 25% retail. That's It's always been that way. That's why I always kind of laugh when farmers say, well, I'm getting uh, nothing compared to retailers. Well, retailers have to deal with many other variables that are uh, really impacting the cost to operate, the cost of goods in general. If you look at the big three, uh, the final statements of the big three, so Empire Sobeys, Loblaw's, and Metro, over the last five years, uh, ratios related to gross margins and profitability have remained the same, uh, really. So uh, when 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 Jagman Singh and other politicians actually accuse grocers of of greedflation, for example, uh, I I fail to see the data they're using to accuse. Uh, Grocers, because we just don't see it. What's publicly available, we just can't say that greenflation exists. Now, I'm not suggesting that it doesn't exist. There are some parts of the grocery store where prices did go up, and parts of the increase are hard to explain, and beef is one of them for sure. Uh, Dairy alternatives, uh, meat analogs, all these products are – we need to understand the story. It's it's hard to understand what's going on there. But overall, I think that uh, that grocers have behaved uh, accordingly uh, based on on the fact that they had to they had to beat the market. They had to be ahead of the market. When you're managing twenty thousand products and and there's so much volatility in the marketplace, you have to try to beat the market as much as possible. So you you want to make sure that you protect your margins. So I can't really blame grocers, but Is there green inflation going on? It is a possibility. And and that's why I've always said perhaps an investigation, as we saw in the U.S., could be a good idea.
0: Yeah, I'm smiling because I think of some of the investigations of other products. In British Columbia, they had a a utilities commission looking into gas prices a couple of years ago. But the proviso was, Uh or the guideline was, you're not allowed to look at the impact of government policy. And I'm thinking, what? Th- <laughs> you know, a third of it is taxes, and we're not allowed to check you out. And there's other issues that's, too. So I, I hear funny. what you're saying. Well, the other, but, side- but
1: you remember, you, you remember the bread price fixing yes. scheme, uh, which happened for 14 years. We, our lab, we work with the competition bureau on the investigation, and, and nothing really happened. The investigation has been going on for seven years. So you can tell those things are not easy to prove. Yeah. Well. Also, I don't think that's uh, hamstrung
0: uh, politicians because they will make the statements without the data, <laughs>
1: <laughs> or, or vice. It's it's always interesting to to see politicians kind of weaponizing science mm-hmm. or weaponizing data in some way or another.
0: Let me just—it's—it's it's obviously related. I'm just going to change gears a little bit. <laughs> Excuse me. I've mentioned the dairy commission several times. And I want to talk just a little bit about milk marketing uh, and, you know, in the Dairy Commission and dairy boards, that kind of stuff, because, you know, at Dalhousie, you guys have done, as, as speaking of research, the research on it.
1: Yeah, uh, the CDC is clearly a problem. Uh, it's a crown corporation. So I'll remind people that about 85 people work at the CDC. It is a crown corporation. These people are, are federal employees of the government. And their job is to actually set a fair price. The, the challenge with the C D C the last several years, and I knew this before this year, is the lack of transparency. Just last week, we learned that uh, executives at the CDC got received bonuses, but we they never disclose amounts uh, of these bonuses. So there's nothing wrong with bonuses, but explain why you're giving bonuses and and the amounts. I think I think that those, that that would be the minimum uh, Canadians are expecting. And, and for the 8.4% in the spring and now the 2.5%, we have no idea where these numbers are coming from. They surveyed farms. We don't know where they are, who they are, what size. Are, they, are these farms uh, operating efficiently or not? Are they big or not? Those are all questions. G- getting access to the primary data would be critical for everyone to appreciate um, what dairy farmers are asking? If they need 8.4%, fine. But milk, unlike other countries in Canada, really, uh, from I would say a social political perspective, is a public good, and and we need to keep that in mind as much as possible. I mean,
0: it's first of all, you've done a fabulous job explaining the complexities of you know the food the food system uh let me put you on the spot and say when when can we expect the next
1: you know Dalhousie you know uh report uh well we have several reports uh, we release them uh almost like every month I guess on a, on a variety of yes. issues but Canada's food price report is going to be out uh, as usual early December so our we're actually we're already working on our 13th edition this year. Uh, so, and, then we're, and we work with the University of Guelph, uh, the University of Saskatchewan, and the University of British Columbia as well. So, there were all four nurses working on this report. And uh, yeah, so we haven't modeled anything. We don't know exactly what numbers are going to tell us. Uh, I'm hoping it's not going to be the same stories last year. Uh, for for the sake of, of families struggling out there.
0: Well, you guys are the the gold standard. uh Maybe I shouldn't use gold, but I'm not going to use the Bitcoin standard, but the gold <laughs> standard. You, you are. Think of all those expressions. eh? that I'm not going to say the Cadillac of either. I'm saying top notch uh, right. expertise that uh, I think across the country we rely on to find out what's actually going on in the uh, food business It's the Dal, you know, the Dalhousie Agri Food Analytics Lab. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois is the director. Thanks so much, Sylvain. Appreciate your time very much. My pleasure, Michael. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, we're beginning to see and beginning to pay the price for the erosion of free speech that is manifested in the cancel culture and the no questions allowed attitude while surrounding every aspect of the social justice agenda. But it's broadened to include things like the government's COVID response and climate change, which has played a major part in the implementation of disastrous energy policies that now we see are devastating low-income individuals and families as well as emerging market countries. I mean, Sri Lanka, Peru, Ghana, Turkey, the list is really a long one. Any country that's importing energy, oil and natural gas is getting killed. On the short list, though, for the most troubling areas of intensifying assaults on free speech is in academia. I mean, we've had professors like Jordan Peterson, Georgia Tech's Judith Curry, uh, Oregon's Peter Bogassian, all resigned over the lack of intellectual freedom and increased censorship. That should have rung huge alarm bells. And then you've got the likes of Marietta College's Bo Weingard, Princeton's Joshua Katz, who were fired for challenging the progressive dogma. And that brings me to the quote of the week. UCLA's Joseph Manson, he's a tenured professor at UCLA, but he resigned this week stating, I'm a professor retiring at 62 because the woke takeover of higher education has ruined academic life. He recently wrote in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, in quotes, where fighting for freedom of speech was once a near-universal rallying cry, opposing free speech has now become an article of faith for some in our society. This has led to a rising movement that justifies silencing opposing views, often on the grounds that stopping others from speaking is, in fact, an exercise in free speech. This movement has both public and private components but it is different from any prior period due to the new technological, political, and economic pressures on the exercise of free speech, end a quote. Well, of course, it continues in Canada, too. Both at our universities, we've got lots of examples of speakers being cancelled. But you've also got this, and I'm shocked that it didn't get more play. The Liberal NDP coalition has passed Bill C-11. That's the internet censorship bill, which Canada's leading expert, for example, on social media, University of Ottawa's Michael Geist, he's the chair of the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, but he concludes that the government, in quotes, is engaged in content regulation without regard for the Charter of freedom of expression analysis. Well, we should think about that. Either you are in favor of free speech or you are not. One thing, though, we are seeing a continued assault on free speech with so many areas considered a no-fly zone, and it's infecting society. But as I said, right up top, we're starting to pay the price. Not allowing questions, for example, regarding climate change has now come home to roost with serious consequences that are going to be felt not just this year, not just next winter, but for years to come. It's something to consider. I always look forward to getting a chance to talk about, well, there's so much innovation, uh, technology, that kind of stuff. And I always knock on the door, of Brent Holliday, who's the founder. He's also chair uh, CEO of Garibaldi Capital. And these guys go around. They've been funding new tech startups and mid-range startups, or not startups necessarily, mid-range company, I should have said, mm-hmm. uh, like for uh, well over a decade. Uh, Brent, thanks for finding time. Thank you. Good to be here. I mean, this is uh, fortuitous in this way. I mean, we're looking at the stock market. We had this huge blow off, uh, I would call in the aggressive tech, the ones with, uh, you know, with the promise, but not the earnings. I mean, we have so many examples of that. That's been one of the, the major change in the markets. And I'm just wondering, how have you felt it on the ground? I mean, you're talking to the tech companies, you're getting approached by tech companies saying, hey, can you help us get funding? Can you fund us? That kind of stuff.
2: The way I look at it is, let's look at around 2018, 2019, prior to the pandemic. Where were we? What were the valuations like then? And and remember, in technology, we have this unique accounting language where we value companies as multiples of revenue, as opposed to multiples of actual cash flow. Uh, And these multiples of revenue for the software as a service or SaaS companies was growing to ridiculous heights, 20 times, public companies trading at 20, 30, 40 times revenue. Um, let alone you know cash flow if they had any how how could they possibly grow into that valuation so we started to scratch our heads in late 2020 when you know it, it all of these companies like zoom communications and digital health and all all took off to 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 these very high multiples if i look at it today guess what we're back to where we were in 2018 2019 in terms of multiples in some sectors there's been an even bigger hit uh, like fintech Uh, For instance, uh, you know, down even lower than it was then. But across the board, um, companies that sell software to businesses specifically, um, B2B, we call it, those uh, had the highest uh, jumps in valuation. And they've come back down to earth uh, with a, you know, kind of a sickening thud. But they've come back to where they were in 2018, 2019. The market just got way ahead of itself. That's the main point. Did you find that people, or tech companies were approaching you and
0: in their own mind, they had such lofty valuations, you, you just couldn't get involved? I mean, there's it's sort of like, you know, the, the layman has got a house and everybody values their house, I think, a little bit more than probably because they knew someone who sold theirs for yeah, hire.
2: That's yeah. right. Well, that's an exact because uh, we we help companies with capital. We also sell uh, companies, early stage companies, not mid stage companies, kind of, uh, you know, call it 20 to 100 million in value. And so these companies, which are not that well established, if they're worth 20, 30, $40 dollars in the broader market, they they were comparing themselves to companies that were ten billion and saying, "I'm I'm worth the same." Um, I think in in um, in the mining industry, and uh, uh, our good friend Grant gave me this one. Uh, it's called closeology. So if you were, you uh, know, it wasn't geology that you. If I was close to where a mine used to be, then I there must be gold there. Well, it's very similar in technology. It was well, I'm just like this company that's public and about 350,000 times bigger than me, but I should be, you know, roughly the same valuation, the same multiple. Uh, So that happened a lot. Um, We prefer not to, we don't want to disappoint in expectations. And we know how the market thinks about valuation. We know how the private equity market thinks about it. The VCs think about it. We know how buyers think about it. And, uh, uh, you know, if we went to a company and said, here's the range that we think we can get you money, and they said, well, that's, you know, somebody else is telling me they can get a lot more, or I don't think that's, that's enough in today's market, we would say, okay, well, good luck. And in some cases, they would have gone out and gotten those ridiculous valuations, but where are they now? What, what kind of pain are you in if you raised money as a private company at a very high valuation? And now you're going to have a bunch of really disgruntled investors if you're going to come and say, well, actually, this round's going to be at one third of what you paid. That sets up a very, very distressing situation.
0: What a great point that I think maybe uh, not everybody is uh, sensitive to is that it won't just be one round of of financing. It'll get you to a certain place. So you're right. You have to go out to another round, either at a much lower valuation or you're not getting it, you know, so uh, that's a big, important part that's changed in the marketplace.
2: There's some uh, uh, guys that are rubbing their hands today. They are the lenders to technology because it's non-dilutive. So uh, these these quasi-lenders, venture funds, or actual banks, the big banks, Scotia RBC, BMO, CIBC, they lend to technology companies based on their contractual value of their software uh, contracts. They're the ones that are going to be getting lots of business because the entrepreneurs that raised money in this uh, bubble that we just had are don't want to go and have that down round. They don't want to disappoint their investors. They want to stretch their runway as long as they can. And if they take this non-dilutive financing, they'll be able to get there. So that's an interesting shift in the market. You're going to see a lot more debt.
0: How accurate is it? uh, You know, uh, I go back to, of course, the dot-com bubble, you know, March of 2020. I actually wrote a front page uh, business article in the Vancouver Sun saying we're at at the top. And that coincidentally was the top, but I'll tell you how I got there. I got there because if I recall, 3Com owned Palm, you know, like Palm yep, Pilot. Yep. They just brought Palm Pilot to the market and they valued it higher than the parent company. You know, they, the valuation was, which of course is kind of, it's not impossible, but it's it's nonsensical. You know, so I said, okay, we've gone to peak crazy here. How accurate or
2: valid is that comparison to that period? So the, the March 2000 timeframe, which was nuts, uh, um, it was, um, PMC Sierra, local uh, semiconductor uh, design company, uh, at one point, I think they peaked at 34 billion US in value, and their revenues weren't yet above 20 million. Like that, those times were so insane. And and, uh, I'm going to sound old here, but all the young people today, they didn't go through that. They were still in high school or grade school, and they think they... You know, some of them are um, thought leaders in technology today. They're in their 30s and and they say, whoa, this is a bubble. This is ridiculous valuation. Well, I, I, I say, look, um, what we went through was an uh, exuberance for sure, uh, led by these things that happened in COVID that once again, we thought we were changing the world. Why did why did those things go crazy in 99, 98, 99, 2000? The world was changing because the internet, because of, you know, broadband, all of these things were changing. Uh, so. Self service, everything. This time around, it was, oh, digital healthcare actually is going to work. I'm going to be able to be on a screen and talk to my doctor. Uh, I can do education this way. I can do work this way. The whole work shift that we had. So everybody just got a little exuberant that the world has changed. And that's where I think, um, uh, as soon as I start hearing that from people, uh, I start selling technology stocks. <laughs> <laughs> No, but your point's very well taken. I mean, yes, we
0: were using concepts this time around that were actually in operation, whether it mm-hmm. we are going to drive electric vehicles. So I think of Rivian, you know, whose yeah. valuation at the outset was absurd, but, but we are going to use them. We are, you know, Zoom and uh, the conferencing calls, that kind of stuff was clearly in play, so much of it. So that's an interesting distinction there. Uh, you know, the other thing, we had so many cheerleaders though, because the market on whole was going up and there was, you know, fear of missing out. There was, Mm -hmm. you know, so many headlines, you know, Kathy Wood became the most famous investment (laughs) manager in North America, you know, all of those things, which cheerleader for, and Elon Musk didn't hurt either. You know, I mean, uh, you know, very popular figure, charismatic figure, obviously with Tesla, but with SpaceX and, and it seems like he just snapped his fingers and people got excited.
2: Yeah. Well, and and, and that happened in crypto when he started creating fake uh, (laughs) coins and they were going straight up. Yeah, no, they, we're going to look back on it, we already are, and say, okay, we did get a little ahead of ourselves. But um, the damage, the, the, the way the markets have swung today, and we've had this little, you know, we've come back over the last couple of weeks, um, uh, and earnings are happening now, we're going to see what the real impact was of, of, of this uh, uh, economy, the broader economic shift that has happened, inflation, etc. So we're, we're going to see where we sort of shake out. But I, all the time, every time, the pendulum shifts too far. And it happens in the public markets. There's just way too much fear and the pendulum goes and the valuations get too low, um, which gives you a buying opportunity. It happens in the private markets. Um, the, the the venture capitalists who fed this market and raised big funds and put huge, huge funding rounds together. Uh, you know, Vancouver's uh, Truly You raised a $390 million round. I mean, that's unheard of prior to the last couple of years. And they're still a private company. Um, so those things uh, uh, are, are now, th- those investors, rather, are now not investing, at least not new investments. Their whole mantra today is, "Oh, I've got to take care of those investments that I was in. I've got to make sure they have enough money to execute their business plan. And I'm not going to go and do new deals. So what happens is the innovation kind of slows down because that the new deals aren't getting funded. The smart investors, Mike, that this happened in... Um, it's happened in 2001 and 2002, the ones that made boatloads of money stepped in at this point and started to invest in those companies where everybody else was hiding under their desks for fear of what was going to happen to their existing companies. They're looking backwards. The smart ones went and made investments in new companies and got decent valuations from the investor's perspective because it is low, but just backed the, co- the new companies, the new, new thing. And there were companies back in that timeframe that emerged out of nowhere like Facebook and and uh, Tesla and others that, that you know, those are those are companies born in that downturn.
0: Yeah, that's that's the point. Uh, I've got other questions about what's going on now and what's hot now. But I want to just finish with, okay, so I'm an investor. Uh, I didn't get killed in the tech bubble. I did take, you know, some money off the table, you know, when I felt it was a little overvalued. Mm-hmm. But what am I looking for now? Or how do I pull the trigger now? I guess both, both are different. Those are different questions. What am I looking for?
2: Here's what I look for, and I am a long investor. I don't trade uh, daily. I'm long, and 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 when I think in the in the private markets, you're really long. Like you're looking in, at investing in things that probably won't exit for five to ten years. So if I'm long, the 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 main thing I'm looking for is what is happening to enterprise spending. The consumer is fickle. There are technology companies that supply things to consumers. Netflix, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of examples. E-commerce. Uh, TikTok, Snap just had a horrible day. Um, b- those are tied to what consumers want and consumer fickleness. Um, that changes, that sentiment, consumer sentiment can be good in a bad market and bad in a good market. What I look for is in the business or the enterprise, are the enterprises slowing spending? Are they laying off people? Are they slowing spending? The biggest spenders of IT dollars are banks, telecom providers and healthcare now. And so if you see those types of buyers uh, starting to slow and that spending slows, so where do you look for stuff like that? You look to guys like Gartner. uh, um, Those are the the, the people that produce these, look forward by looking at what's happening today. If the enterprises stop uh, or slow down buying software, buying hardware, buying uh, uh, services around IT, that's where I think we're going to be in trouble. And, and so far, we haven't seen it. So far, that spending has held up. I think software is more important than it w- was 20 years ago to an, a given enterprise. It, it, it It's central to what you do. I mean, heck, look at the Rogers thing that happened <laughs> a couple of weeks ago and how many industries were affected. Technology and software are at the heart of what most people do today. They can't afford to stop spending in innovation, and they only will when they see a very bleak future in front of them. So... That's my leading indicator of are we headed into a tech recession, is are the big businesses still spending on technology?
0: One last on that regard. Can you have a give me a comment on the sort of seniors, the big names, the fangs, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Netflix, but also obviously Amazon. Uh, you know, they've had a big come down also.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, everybody had a haircut. There's no doubt about it. Um, so uh, because Google... Google's a, a Alphabet now is a is a monster that is both consumer and uh, enterprise. It's harder to see what's happening there, but take a Salesforce for instance, um, and and watch Salesforce got uh, brought down a lot, but watch what happens to them and their earnings, right? Uh, watch it, their growth, their annual contract value, because that's where I'm talking about. That's the businesses spending money. That's what Salesforce does. Um, Oracle, uh, Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft has a big consumer side with Xbox, but. You can they break it out and they'll tell you what's going on with the key enterprise products. That uh, Netflix just had a bath um, because you know, hey, you can't grow forever. <laughs> uh, but uh, Google and and Meta um, are now um, it's gonna be a very interesting week next week. They both report uh, and I'm gonna be watching to see what behind the numbers, what are they, what's growing, what's not growing, and uh, is it a broader ad recession for advertising because they're very heavily related to advertising. Is that going to sort of bring everybody that's related to advertising down? Um, You know, I I, but then I look at Apple (laughs) and Apple keeps chugging along. What an incredible company. And uh, I've held Apple now for five years and I just wish I'd put the whole house in Apple five years ago. It's still going.
0: Yeah, I have a few of those <laughs> that I wish I had. <laughs> and I've got a few
2: that I wish I hadn't, both. Yeah, well, there's, are, there's
0: that too. <laughs> uh, l- let's finish with this. Uh, you know how much I love, I, I pick uh, Brent's brain all the time, but what's happening, what's new, that kind of stuff. So uh, I want to start with one that I've been seeing some information on, and I guess I hadn't followed it closely for the last several months because obviously other events are taking over. But let's talk a little bit about self-driving cars
2: just for a moment. Sure. Sure. Um, autonomous cars is a great, uh, concept. Um, uh, if you think about how these things develop, uh, engineers are looking at things from a math perspective. They love looking at traffic patterns, for instance, it's all math. Why do the cars slow down here, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and what the engineers have, this is, you know, at Tesla, at Alphabet, at Apple, at Baidu in China, um, at Amazon, uh, they're all engineers that are trying to solve a problem, which is human error. And human error, if we can remove that out of car driving, uh, you know, being distracted, uh, whatever, um, then their theory as engineers, because everything's math to them, is that there will be no accidents. It'll all be, you know, easy to drive. We don't need to drive. So um, uh, now the technology has advanced so far in terms of, you know, the core of this is, of course, algorithms um, and sensing things that are going on around a car. The technology has advanced so much, the chip speeds are so fast that these sensors can react faster than humans. And that is the big reason that autonomous driving is happening. However, the engineers have a few more things to figure out. One of them is snow. Uh, you, the, the, the sensors on your car get packed with ice in a snowstorm and you have lost all of your uh, uh, abilities to drive through sensors. Um, Windstorms, dust storms, uh, debris—like there's random stuff that happens in the earth that the engineers can't predict—and that's what's gumming up uh, right now a broader rollout of autonomous vehicles. There's those types of things. So, so in my mind, it will start with business. It'll start with delivery. It'll start with taxis. It'll start with uh, uh, trucks. Um, imagine a lane of the 401 that just has autonomous trucks driving in it. And all they do is drive on the 401 and get off at certain exits and park. And then some human comes and jumps in and drives them to their destination, right? That's, I think the first step because the, driving along the 401, unless it's a snowstorm, shouldn't be too hard for an autonomous truck. Uh, I, th- I see it in taxis. That's what Baidu rolled out in China. Uh, they've, they've got a million miles of people in taxis without steering wheels already, um, which is pretty cool. But they've also got a person in the passenger seat that is there in case something goes horribly wrong. (laughs) So, so yeah, no, I think I love autonomous driving. I think it's going to change the world. Um, And I saw a futurist four years ago uh, at the BAMP Venture Forum. And he said, children born today, 2018, will never get driver's licenses because they won't need them. So he was predicting by 20. Twenty thirty four, we, we we are drive we are driving around without steering wheels. The, the implications
0: are just so fascinating, though. And you know, economically, as you say, it's going to be a huge replacement of, of certain types of jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the economy is already changing. We've already gone to a much more intensive delivery mode. You know, right now, uh, so it, it's just fascinating the implications societally. Uh, look at the elderly. I mean, the mobility that'll provide for the elderly is just incredible. You know, those kinds of things, you know. Uh, anyways, it's just an exciting thing. Uh, give me one or two other things that I should have my eye on in the tech space. Not, I'm not talking stocks necessarily. I'm just talking, you know, trends or what's changed or what's happening.
2: Well, I think, um, I mean, I, again, everybody's been so focused on what just happened that they're not turning around and looking forward. If I'm looking forward, I think there's a, a really, really big trend in technology, which is ESG or wellness. It's uh, how can we, uh, create things that are going to make uh, uh, us better, or uh, and so that applies to healthcare, but it also, like especially mental health, but it also applies to education. It applies to the environment. I think there's a big, huge push in green tech. Last time around, clean tech had a big run right after the tech wreck, but they they ended up investing in science projects, and you you, you all these people poured money in in the in the two thousands to things like carbon capture and and whatnot, and it just took so long for that technology to commercialize. Well, it's now happening. And things are, uh, uh, you know, despite um, my ETF and clean tech not doing very well lately, it's actually, I think, going forward, a really big trend. Clean and ESG, you know, things that make people better, uh, wellness in general. I, that's a huge trend coming out of this. Uh, and I think, the you know, what we need to keep thinking about is, how much technology influences business and how business relies so heavily on technology. Cloud computing, security, uh, I still am very, very bullish in those sectors.
0: Let me finish with one more area that you alluded to just for a moment, and that's digital finance. Uh, Do you think that what's happened, and again, it may be unfair, but when you have all the problems within the crypto space, you know, and the notable that continue, do you think that sort of derailed whether it should or not, has it probably derailed uh, the digital financial moves?
2: Um, I don't think so. There's this whole thing called DeFi, um, uh, which is uh, part of this new thing called Web3, which people are trying to quantify all of the things that would include crypto blockchain. But also, I mean, within DeFi, you'd be thinking about um, uh, kids getting, you know, virtual credit cards, you know, so it's consumerish to to changing how banks operate. Uh, and uh, look at Neo Financial out of Calgary. They raised $145 million after the tech wreck. Um, and they are a neo bank. They are just a, a, a bank that doesn't have all of the infrastructure that the other banks had. And the other banks, by the way, are quite scared. They're scared of what these neo banks are gonna do. Millennials are gonna go to wealth simple, They're gonna go to Neo Financial. Where's the future of my uh, lifer with, RBC or or BMO, um, these are all. There's a lot of disruptive things still happening in fintech. I just think what happened is we got way ahead of ourselves in valuation for these exciting new things, and uh, now the reality is going to catch up. And the reality will be that they will make changes. There will be significant changes to how we bank, how we get mortgages, how we you know get lent- lending, how we can become lenders ourselves, uh, you know, through micro lending. So there's lots of interesting things happening.
0: Well, I mean, you also just finished there with, I think, one of the essentials of finance is you can love the story, but you got to know, has it been fully valued, you know, right. and what value you're playing. And it doesn't matter even if you're talking like a geopolitical event. Have we valued uh, a shortage uh, thanks to the sanctions of wheat, for example? Are we way yes. ahead of ourselves in that? That seems to be the big challenge uh, that I remind people of. The story can sound wonderful, but what are you paying for it? You know on
2: <laughs> exactly. that exactly exactly as
0: usual look i super appreciate that you're finding time for us especially during the summer i know you were on a break but uh, please know it's much appreciated
2: uh, well i enjoy it too let's do it again
0: <laughs> absolutely brent holiday he's the ceo of garibaldi capital they're out there helping mid-sized you know juniors everything to in the tech space Mike Levy joins me on the line now. Mike, I kind of had a a smile this week when they talked about the inflation numbers of 8.1%, where they said the analysts were surprised because they were predicting 8.4%. And my first reaction was, who cares? I don't care what the analysts are saying. The rate that we're paying on average, of course, for a basket of like 700 different goods and services is 8.1% higher than we did this time last year.
3: But the thing that got to me, Mike, is that it seems that the marketplace has taken that as good news. Oh, it's 8.1% instead of 8.4%. U.S. inflation was 9.1%. They're all numbers. They're all high numbers. But uh, to me, I'm taking a look around and saying, these are high inflation numbers. Interest rates are going to go higher. But it seems to me, People are jumping back into the market. Uh, there's, of course, the volatility, but stock markets are going again. Stock markets are up again. There's a days that they're down, but uh, by and large, we're in an uptrend. So what changed in all the news we're getting to get people to come back into the market?
0: Well, I think a couple of things come into play. One is that uh, you'd have an awful lot of people who are playing the market to go down. And when they cover those positions, those short positions, the market bounces, you know, on that news alone. Uh, You know, and that has a bit of its own self-momentum, but there's bargain hunters out there. There's people who've been asking all the way along. I mean, I think that's one of the biases of the financial media is to consistently ask, when should I buy? Or what's a buy out there? And they do that from day one on, you know, as soon as there's any kind of a drop they ask analysts, what are you buying? So I think there is a buy side, uh, you know, kind of uh, bias out there. Uh, We had Don Violo on two weeks ago, Don made it clear that we're in a period of time where a bounce would be, you know, uh, you know, in the presidential cycle, we should have a bounce at this point. So I think there's a lot of factors. And plus, people's minds are changing so regularly, like, will the, you know, the Bank of uh, Canada will, the Federal Reserve continue with their interest rates rising when we start seeing a little bit of erosion in so many areas. So, I mean, there's just so many factors at play, and I think we're just at a period where some people are saying, "Hey, stocks are cheap enough for me. I'm going to jump in." And again, it's always about your time frame. I mean, we may may have a lot of people in there saying, "I got a two week time frame. I got a two month time frame. Three month." Uh, so, I, I just think all those factors come together when you look at a bounce like this after such a prolonged decline or sharp decline?
3: Well, Mike, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and you can correct me on this one, people are also sitting on mountains of cash. That hasn't changed. There's a lot of money out there. Do you figure there's a bit of FOMO, fear of missing out? Uh Uh-oh, this market looks like it could start back up. Uh Uh-oh, now it's three or four days in a row. I don't want to miss this. I'm sitting with all this money. Uh, Maybe I should get some of it back up. Maybe I should even get more back into this market. I find that scary.
0: Well, especially, I mean, what have they been trained to think, though, over the, you know, from COVID on and before that, though, that the Fed was not going to let the market decline. I mean, I look at uh, the fall of 2018. That's when they sort of talked about raising rates and the market took a huge dump down 20 percent, I think, by December, you know, three months later. Well, then they reversed course after promising rate increases. They reverse course. So, if you're an investor, you're sort of going, there is a group out there, they're not going to let this happen. And maybe there's some of that also playing, you know, part in it. We're just so used to the Federal Reserve and other central banks protecting the market. And maybe people think, well, that's enough. And again, though, they may just be traders. They may be looking for a short-term scalp out there as opposed to a long-term investor. Uh, so it's interesting. I, I Again, I just think people should be aware of the risk they're taking with that. Uh, you know, I'm too conservative for that. I'm not looking to scalp a trade. And as we chatted with uh, Kevin Muir, we chatted, uh, you know, earlier than that with several other analysts. You know, just talking about be careful out there. Yesterday's leaders may be a good trade, but they're not going to be the long-term leaders.
3: That's very interesting. You say that because um, one of the uh, um, companies that I deal with did a trade or, or did a comparison on previous leaders, looking at the Canadian banks. And um, two years ago, the loser was the Royal Bank. It was very small. And then next year, the winner is the Royal Bank. And uh, I, I think um, people are maybe concentrating on what's down but good. And if it's good and it's gone down, maybe I should step in. And this is what I think might be smart. And take a small piece, Mike but you just can't jump in with both feet, even if it's the Royal Bank.
0: And, and Yeah, and I think you your highlight there, you're talking about value, though. You know, and there's yeah. a lot of things that moved in the last two years of the market cycle that clearly had challenged value. I don't, you know, I mean, we had so many tech stocks that were promising earnings 27 years out. You know, that, that's hardly a value play. It's an aggressive speculative play. I, I don't think that's where the action's going to be, but there are always dead cat bounces. That's the thing. When you've had, if, if you have to decide, you know, Michael Levy does for his own portfolio, I do anyone. Okay, so are we in a bullish trend or a bearish trend? Well, I'm in the camp that says, be cautious, but I'm always in that camp. You know, protecting my capital is the key component, I think, of long term investing. Other people are far, far more aggressive. And again, I keep emphasizing, I know, but, you know, are you, did you jump back in the market in the hopes of a sort of a shorter term, three month, four month move? well aware that that, the rug could be pulled out from under you? Or do you think that was sort of a bottoming
3: phase and we're in for the long term? It's those people I think have some challenges. Well, my worry is looking at this market and our discussion is if the Fed comes out, U.S. Federal Reserve comes out and raises by three quarters of one percent, as the market is fully expecting and some of the comments are me, we may have to keep it at this level and keep raising as they call a super hike, you know, three, three quarters of 1%. Could the negativity that played from the Bank of Canada and the Bank of Canada's comments also play on this market very quickly on the Fed's comments that follow their rate hike.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's coming back to what people think is going to happen vis-a-vis. Is it going to be a recessionary pressure or not? Is it going to be the Fed, Federal Reserve, and the Bank of Canada continuing with their rate hikes? There is disagreement on both of those. How high will the Federal Reserve push the rate hike? You've got people, obviously, if they're jumping back in the market, probably the bias there is they're not going to go through with the promised rate hikes. There are other quality analysts saying, yes, they are. So, I mean, that's what's going to resolve itself over the next few months. And again, I my big concern is people appreciate that's the risk. There's no definitive answer at this point. Time will tell. But you're taking the risk that the Fed, uh, if you're jumping in the market, you're saying pretty much that the, there's going to be sort of refe- recessionary pressures and the Fed's going to back away from their promise to continue to raise rates.
3: Well, I, I just leave one cautionary note. I li- I go back to the... 8.1% and 9.1% inflation numbers. Certainly, they could start to get a little better as we start comparing to uh, um, inflation that's a little closer in time frame. In other words, not way back when, but inflation that is going to be a year ago July or a year ago August. And uh, I think that you've got, we've got to be very, very careful because if that number keeps going, then there is no doubt to me that that's going to be felt in the stock market. And as you say, a word of caution is probably advised.
0: Yeah, I think it's a key point that, uh, you know, so next June we'll be comparing to this June's, you know, uh, gas prices, this June's food prices. And of course, you're right, if that number keeps compounding at 29, 54% for gasoline, look out, it may well. But that's, yeah, I think that's just a cautionary uh, warning about, Uh, how inflation will develop, you know. But again, I also think, Mike, just very quickly, this whole talk about peak inflation as if it's significant, uh, as if it's going to signal a reversal in prices is going to be off base. Yes, we may not continue at 8% or 9%, but that is not the same thing as saying prices are going to, you know, not grow at that same rate and fall. No, I think we're stuck with it as consumers. We've got a higher price environment for us to survive as individuals. So that's what will be, you know, that's who I'm worried about is the individuals. That's what I take away from the inflation numbers. There's many millions of people who can't afford it.
3: One more small thing. Remember, the Fed and the Bank of Canada, the target rate is 2% to 3%. And we're up at between eight and nine. That's a big, big driveway to get to the end of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Michael Levy, more to come. Stay with us. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. We heard the simplistic mantra just increase the oil supply so many times at the outset of the Ukraine invasion. But it exposed, I think, the ignorant superficiality of many, including in the political field, other government officials, who thinks it's as easy as turning on a tap. I mean, forget the fact that politicians were asking investors to put out billions of dollars for new production, when as the U.S. Energy Secretary herself, Jennifer Grantham, said they want to phase out the use of oil in the next five to 10 years. Come on, who in their right mind is going to make an investment that would take well over 10 years to start seeing a return when the government says their goal is to make sure there's no demand? I mean, the governments are also talking about putting on a windfall profit tax. I mean, come on. What's not been discussed, though, is a lack of equipment and skilled labor needed to ramp up production. I mean, these are the fundamentals, the practical side. And by the way, understanding the lack of workable equipment is straightforward. When oil prices fell, companies, especially in the fracking area, scaled down their operations. Not near as many wells were in operation. And also, exploration budgets were dramatically cut back. So, when they did have an equipment breakdown on existing operations, well, they simply took the parts from the idle, uh, idle rigs and other equipment. There was no need to spend the money to replace them. But now, When more rigs, for example, are in operation, many aren't in working order, though, when they want to put more in operation. Now, I know there's more to the story, but I think you get the idea. Perhaps more challenging, though, is the lack of skilled workers. And that brings me to the shocking stat. First, a comparison. I know, kind of a funny one, because earlier this week, we had the Major League Baseball draft. 616 players were selected. Here's the point. That's more than 50% more than the number of people who graduated with a bachelor's degree in petroleum engineering, which is estimated to be about 400, according to Texas Tech's university professor Lloyd Heinz. He tracks the annual enrollments at more than three dozen petroleum schools around the world. But that enrollment has dwindled, thanks to the war on fossil fuels. That's down 83% from 2017, but now only 400? Well, the point is, the war on fossil fuels discouraged many from seeking a career in petroleum engineering, despite salaries, by the way, that started at something like, what, I read about 130,000 US. But here's the point, without skilled labor, without the capital, without the equipment, come on, politicians can talk all they want about increasing supply, but the obstacles are huge. As the old saying goes, easier said than done. So many questions to ask. I mean, look at the interest rate environment is changing. The housing market is changing, whether you're looking this side of the border or south of the border. I'm wondering, by the way, if the Federal Reserve is looking at those things. But let me bring in Aussie Jurek right now, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzie, I want to talk in a minute about the U.S. market and the impact of those high rates. I also got to talk about the latest tax grab from governments on pers- people's uh, real estate holdings but first this is a straightforward question but i get it all the time you know they feel when they hear all these pricings for real estate they're all over the map you know when i look at this news story or that news story it, it just doesn't seem consistent in what we're reporting
4: yeah i had several listeners actually asking uh, how come you sometimes your prices are different than what the board says and and so of course you know uh, i think the Israeli said, we uh, have statistics uh, a lies, damn lies, or something yeah, like that. Very, yeah, the point. The, but it's really not that. It is that some simple, they're all doing the right reporting, but they use different measures. So for instance, we have an average price, we have a median price, and the boards now more and more use a benchmark price. Now, so average means it's simply whatever sold in a given area in a given month, and it's divided by the number of properties that sold and they arrive at a price. What I like about that is that it's always very area-specific, and if I want to have house prices in Port Coquitlam, I can get there very quickly. The benchmark price is sort of more of a what is considered to be, by various factors, an average house in that area. Not the average prices at months, but what the average pi- price, sort of a mystical thing, I call it. Anyways, the median price is sort of that measure of where the, house, the, le- the first house sells above the middle, and below it. So if there was a million dollar average prices, the medium might be 500,000 If half the half, half the sales were over 500, half the sales under 500. Sounds complicated because it could add a few more different things because people look at year to date prices, people look at what happened in February versus now, which what I do is which shows us a decline, year over year shows us an incline and that's where the differences are. Yeah, just one more on that score though. Um
0: because you also get the same thing when people are looking for mortgage rates. Uh, You know, again, they go online and they get this rate or that rate. And I've had to, you know, not the challenge. I understood that I'm getting different rates, so I have to do more work. But that's confusing to people, too.
4: Well, and that's why I firmly believe, you know, we love our banks and all that. But do they love us back? Right. And maybe your own bank, uh, even though you've been with them for years, you may not get the best rate. So neither top-notch mortgage broker like you have had kyle green on uh, several times and he understands you he looks at you and then he says well this particular financial institution would have the best rate for you as a four-year term for instance because they're matching funds or whatever and you'll only know that from some from a professional that's in that business every single day okay let me come to us because uh I've seen a startling
0: decline in activity. Whether we're talking mortgage applications, whether we're talking the actual sales, uh, you know, I think we get universal agreement that the rise in interest rates down in the states has had a significant impact on their real estate market.
4: Yeah, and it's been come from three percent to six percent. You know, not no surprise a doubling of the interest rates. U.S. sales are down thirty-three percent. In prices below two hundred fifty thousand, which a lot of places in the United States are. And below 500,000, everything is down about 11 percent. Mortgage payments are up 43.5 percent over last year on average across the U.S. Wow. I mean, that's that's a huge increase. And the sales collapse are a result. Now, whether you look CNBC or Redfin, they're saying that Americans are now canceling deals at the highest rate since the start of the panic. Remember in 2020, everybody ran away. Well, we are now, those cancellations are as high as they were then, right? so. <clears throat> the, the, the reality is that people are scared, they're worried, we don't know what's going to happen, and they're confused and they're backing off. Well, especially when you say like their mortgage payments are up so significantly
0: year to year, uh, you know, uh, and sales being down, et cetera. I think there's uh, exactly what the Federal Reserve wanted to do. They, you know, as we had uh, the former head of the New York Federal Reserve, Dudley, on are talking about they wanted to quell action in both the stock market, other asset prices, and real estate. Well, they've got their wish. That's one of those HL Mencken's, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it good huh. and hard. Uh, so let me move on to one more thing here that was in the news. Uh, and I, you know, it doesn't matter where you live. I, we've had a theme, and we've said, look, the governments are desperate for money, and there's only a few places they can get it. And one of them is real estate. I would look at uh, in Europe, they've gone after pension funds to some degree, but that's where people have their money. Well, we've got another piece of evidence to support that. And I'm looking in British Columbia, where they have something called a speculation tax, which has got to be one of the great misnamed taxes in history, because it has nothing to do with speculation. But they called it that because the polls say people don't like speculation, but they might not necessarily, uh, you know... uh, support a tax on somebody's secondary residence, like a summer place or, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that speculation tax been in for a few years. Now they amount, announced it's going to be expanded.
4: Yeah, it used to be just Vancouver, Victoria, and I'm on Kelowna. Now it's going to be expanded to North Couch and Duncan, Ladysmith, and Lee Couch, and, as well as Lions Bay and Squamish. Surprisingly, not Whistler, which probably has more vacant homes uh, during the summer, certainly. But the point is, As you said, why are they doing this? They want more from our private assets and individuals, despite getting outlandish property taxes. I mean, Vancouver last year was what? Six and a half percent in the last three years it was 30% increase. Now we have a property purchase tax uh, on top of that. And then all the development fees don't get me going. The point is, they're making big grabs wherever they can.
0: Well, and the other thing, as I say, I want to just emphasize: this had nothing to do with speculation. As I say, the polls were very clear in a rising market. People didn't like the idea of speculators. That's another discussion. That was also off base, but it's another discussion. This has nothing to do with it. I mean, you could be forced to pay, uh, you know, speculation tax. You know, for example, uh, now they want to move it to North Cowichan, Duncan, Ladysmith, uh, Lake Cowichan. Well, people can have. Uh, secondary homes there. It could be their summer place. Nothing right. to do with speculation. They could have owned it 30 years, and they're still going to be paying this tax. That's not what people conceive of as speculation. But the other thing is, they said, "Well, this freed up a whole bunch of, you know, brought back a whole bunch of uh, homes that people could rent." Well, I, I don't. I still haven't seen any data that supports that uh, that proclamation.
4: Very quick example, Mike. We have a doctor client in Vancouver. They have a very nice condo. She says, I have still the furniture there from my mother. and. Uh, I've got to really be careful. I don't want to put a tenant in there because I spent six months there and I spent six months in Anaima. they just outside of Anaima the condo. I don't want to rent that either because I want to use it for the six months. i got to literally on the day of the six months leave the Vancouver one and on the day so that I don't get over the six months. Either way, I'm supposed to pay pe- speculation taxes and I am not a speculator and I resent that to be called a spe- speculator.
0: Well, one of the things that uh, you see also from poll results is Canadians are pretty enthusiastic about taxes, as long as it doesn't impact them. They always think <laughs> that somebody else should be paying yeah. that. But I think it comes to that broader issue, and that's the nature of private property. Like nobody, people work for their money. They pay a big chunk in income tax. And what they have left over, in this case, may be to buy a vacation property. You know, as you say, that can they can use okay. four or five months a year. But it's after tax dollars. Then they got that property they'll pay pro, you know they'll pay all sorts of other taxes. A property purchase tax in British Columbia, not the same in other provinces. It's only really onerous and I think in a couple of Canadian provinces. Uh, but you know you're paying taxes all the way along and that's still not enough for government. They want to say, this is how you use your private property. That's the bigger issue here, no matter where you're listening from today, because governments uh, are going to take leave. They have increased that sort of uh, burden. And it's just whose property is it? In this case, the government saying it's mine, a little bit more
4: mine. (laughs) Well, yes. And it seems they're finding all these new ways that we never heard of. We have school taxes we never heard of. It's funny how some provinces like Alberta don't even have a property transfer tax. But we seem to, in British Columbia, embrace the taxes with great happiness.
0: Well, that's why I vomit when I hear a politician stand up. I care about uh, affordability and housing. And my gosh, they are the biggest problem there. There's nobody makes more money on housing than government. Just like nobody makes more money on gas than government. Let me finish with this, Ozzy, because I know this the public has spoken there's going to be another land rush conference on september 10 september 10th so uh, and by the way they can get information at www.landrushcanada.com I mean, how many, day, how many years have you been doing a Landrush conference, by the way?
4: This will be 29 years, two of them by Zoom, but 29 years we have done it. Wow, isn't that incredible? And of course, there's a huge raft of speakers. I'll get a chance
0: to talk more about it. The reason I'm bringing it up, though, is there's an early bird ticket package. You know me, love to save a little money.
4: You bet. If you go to LandrushCanada.com, you're off 25% for all of next week. But you've got to do it because as of August 5th, we go on full price as we always do. But it'll be totally sold out. It is mind-boggling the response we have. Every speaker is chopping at the bit to talk about all the things that we want to know. We are bullish long-term on real estate, but boy, we have some tough times ahead, and real estate is not good everywhere. Not all product is good everywhere, and some of it will still soar. Well, and you can always go to uh, www.ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. And just let's remember something. Before you criticize somebody, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away from them and you have their shoes. <laughs> I was going to say, let's
0: send that piece of advice out to all of our listeners when they're sending me some comments. Ozzy, have a good week. I think I started the show this week by saying something like, you know, period of historic change, which I say every week, but more proof of that. I'm looking at what's going on in Europe and it's just absolutely astounding, certainly noteworthy. I mean, are we back to all the old problems, whether it's Italy's debt, Greece's debt, Spain's debt? I mean, the list just goes on and I want to get Victor Adair in here. I'm going to talk more. I'm going to ask about commodities too and a couple of other things. But Vic, let me start with uh, the euro, which is a reflection of what's been going on in Europe. I mean, back to that sort of, or not back, it's at that par level with the U.S. dollar.
5: Yeah, the euro currency uh, fell to par, below par, actually, uh, against the U.S. dollar th- last week. That was the first time in in 20 years. Just to give you an example, you know, par means uh, it takes 100 euros to buy one dollar. Um, as recently as July of 08 I guess, we were at 160 uh, or like it took a dollar sixty to buy one euro is what I mean to say. So the the, the decline in the U.S. dollar uh, in in the euro, <clears throat> pardon me, Mike. <laughs> it's it's summertime. Uh, the decline in the euro here has been a, a function of a number of things, you know, and not the least of which was the Russian invasion of of uh, uh, Ukraine and the resulting surge in energy costs, which resulted in making the economy even slower to the point where Germany recorded a trade deficit in the month of May for the first time since 1991. And that was the result of merging East and West Germany together, and they were struggling economically. So, yeah, it's it's been a, an ongoing
0: economic, um, not a disaster really, but next door to a disaster. Well, and, and you know, I always remind people, that when you hear it's falling against the U.S. dollar, think of it, we quote natural gas prices, we quote oil prices in U.S. dollar terms. So in terms of the euro, it's far worse. I mean, and, and the repercussions, I mean, I had a laugh, by the way, I think it was Friday, Vic, when Christine Lagarde, who's the you know uh, head of the European Central Bank, came out and says, in our base model, their fundamental model, they don't, uh, they're not modeling a recession anytime in the next two years. I mean, what an absurdity. Uh, are they willing to say anything yes they are because there's no way as you just said look the trade number coming out of germany first since 1991 their manufacturing pays six times more for electricity than their competitors you know in north america for an example i mean yeah i don't see how they avoid a recession but again the euro thinks yeah there's probably a recession coming
5: uh, the euro does. The the German uh, 10-year bond dropped to uh, the lowest yield in about three or four months uh, this week. I mean, the bond market sees a recession coming in Europe. And by the way, you know, we're also either in or going in to a recession in the United States as well. I think the key thing most of the time that impacts the value of the euro relative to the U.S. dollar is what's the Fed doing? And for the past, well, let's say this year, but certainly post the Russian invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, the Fed has been perceived to be much more aggressive on interest rate policy. I mean, just as a for instance, the ECB took the giant step of raising rates by half a basis of uh, 50 basis points this week. That's the first time since 2011, I guess they've they've touched rates and they raised them all the way to zero.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, but think about that. It's eight years since they've been in negatives, 11 since they bumped rates up. And and people are saying, why are you talking about this? Why are you talking about the euro? I'm worried about my finances. Well, let me just give you a brief one. When they raised the rates this week, literally hundreds of billions of dollars have been lost in the bond market. And who's owning those bonds? Well, it's the European Central Bank, but also the banking industry in Europe, which has got enough problems on their hands. They've got, you know, they've got reserves of European Central Bank bonds who have now gone lower in terms of their value. So there's losses to incorporate, losses thanks to electricity and, you know, the, the utility companies that are involved with that. Germany, I think they said the losses were $200 billion. The list goes on. Well, this is a global world. These things impact us here, especially as I say, if somebody's got a debt problem, I always want to know who lent it. So uh, this is, a, I think, a key point.
5: One of my favorite things in terms of currency is that capital comes to America for safety and opportunity. And I think in this case, we can really underline safety. You know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the whole Eurozone is knee deep in really existential problems. So it's like, why the hell would you want to have your money there when you can have it
0: over in America where they're only ankle deep in existential problems? Well, and that's the answer to the question we've, which we've been getting. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we've been long-term bulls on the dollar, long-term bears on the euro. But the reason on the dollar is exactly what you've just alluded to, just so people understand. It's always perceived to be the safe haven. Certainly is compared to Japan these days, you know. <laughs> and I would suggest that only oil price rise has helped the Canadian dollar to stay somewhat afloat here. But in Europe, yeah, the problems are deep and there's more to come. Uh, Vic, let me shift gears. I want to talk about the commodities and commodity index, for example. You know, as you've been chronicling on victoradare.ca, you know, I think we're in our seventh week of commodities drop.
5: Yeah, uh, the Goldman Sachs commodity index, one of the widely followed indices, has closed lower for seven consecutive weeks. But let me give you the background here. I mean, the commodity sector has been the hottest sector of any market. Uh, certainly this year and certainly, you know, post the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And a lot of speculative capital has flowed to that market. And what happens in markets, you get to a point where you say, well, how much is already priced in? You know, who doesn't know, in other words? And then when you get a market that kind of runs out of buyers, if for some reason the price starts to tick a little lower and there's no buyers, well, it, it ticks lower. And then some of the people maybe that were late to get in, you know, they get forced selling and you get this, uh, this flow. And that's the thing that I really try to pay attention to Where's sentiment, where is the market sentiment relative to where the price is and are things out of whack? So I think we're having a call it a short term correction, at least. Uh, I mean, also look at gold. We're at a 15 month low in gold. It's down about four hundred dollars from the high that it made uh, just after the the Russian invasion. And, you know, it's just kind of been doggedly going lower and lower and lower. Copper, the same thing, corn, cotton, you know, all of these markets have been under pressure. Perhaps, Mike, even at an academic level, you say, if we're going to be in a recession, there's
0: going to be less breathless demand for commodities. Well, and again, back to the point we consistently make, and because it's so important, It depends on your time frame. Vic, you talked to us about, I'm guessing, four weeks ago. And you said, look, I love oil long term, but I'm shorting it right now. I'm playing it to go down, in other words. And this is when we were hovering around the 115 mark. You said, yeah, it's just a distinction. I've got my short term uh, sort of trades on. But that short term, longer term, I like it in this way. And I thought that was such a wonderful distinction to be made. And I think it's the same across the board. I don't see anything that's changed my mind about the commodity shortages. You know, if we're going to do renewable energy, it doesn't mean all of a sudden we don't need copper, we don't need lithium, we don't need nickel, we don't need aluminum. So I think that's still in play. That's the structural problem. But as you say, fears of recession slowing things down also play a part on the shorter term.
5: Well, there's been a couple of stories out there in the gold market that have been interesting. One is the government of Uganda announced kind of out of the blue that uh, they've been doing some looking around aerial surveys and this and that and discovered that they had 320,000 tons of gold. Uh, It's still in the ground, but, you know, it's there. Now, for perspective, The whole world mines about 3,000 tons of gold per year. So 320,000 tons of gold is a lot. But, you know, maybe there was something to the story. So maybe that pressured gold. And there's also been also a backstory about has the Ukraine been selling gold to try to finance some of their war efforts? So, you know, these kind of stories come out after the price action, as it were, as people try to figure out why something happened because it it seems like it's a struggle for a lot of folks to understand that the prospect of flow capital flows into something drives the price up the price starts to fall capital flows out of it it can be that simple
0: well that's why they've got to go to victoradare.ca victor on a regular basis because you show them that you give them all the charts you show them all the data and help them along to understand those things and do a terrific job on the website, but also for us on Money Talks, and we much appreciate it.
5: Well, thank you, Mike.
0: Time for this week's Goofy Award. United States Secretary of Transportation, I'm very poor at pronouncing names, Pete Buttigieg, said, The more pain we're all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. Wow. Reminds me of President Biden earlier on when gas prices started to explode, saying, well, the, the solution is simple, buy an electric vehicle. How out of touch can you get? I mean, the Wall Street Journal reports that price hikes from the likes of, well, GM, Tesla and Ford and their electric vehicles now mean that the average price of a new EV has hit 54,000 U.S. That's 69,000 Canadians in US dollars. Uh, again, that makes them around $10,000 more than the average cost of a new gas-powered car. Wow. By the way, Tesla, as an example, has increased prices three times this year for their what's that performance version of its top-selling Model Y SUV. But that adds about 9% to the sticker price. It's now 69900 US. According to the Wall Street Journal, here's the thing though, car makers have been steadily raising the price of their EVs in quotes, partly to offset the soaring cost of materials used in the large batteries, end of quote. Well, I'm sorry to have to say this, but we have been warning about that on Money Talks for years. I mean, the amount of mining required for the batteries, but the cost is going up. And I know there are government subsidies, I mean, (laughs) subsidies, but you better be upper middle class and wealthy because who else can afford to buy these electric vehicles? And those subsidies are paid for people who could have never afford the average price like 54,000 US, 69,000 Canadian. And yes, we have subsidies available in Canada for cars that cost a lot more. I mean, come on. Does somebody who can afford to put out, say, 93,000 plus for an Audi e-tron sports pack uh, SUV, or what about the $170,000 BMW i8 Roadster? Do they really need financial help from people who could never afford one? I mean, you've got to love the elitism of the climate change gang in government. Which brings me, again, back to that quote of the week, because you've got to keep in mind, only 10%, well, it's under 10% of Americans own electric vehicles. I mean, this is a beauty. Think of what the Secretary of Transportation said. The more pain we all experience from high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access Electric vehicles, wow, under 10% of Americans, all middle class, upper middle class, wealthy, who own electric vehicles are benefiting from the high gas prices. Isn't that super? While numerous polls say, what, 75% plus of Americans are worried about making ends meet in this inflationary environment. Hey, but don't worry. The upper middle class and the wealthy are doing just fine. That's all the time we have this week, but I just want to remind you, there is so much happening in the world today that you're not seeing in the mainstream media. You don't, can't easily access it. I mean, just tons of stuff. I'm looking at the disintegration of Europe as an example. You know, our main themes, as I mentioned earlier, are playing out. Problems in emerging markets lead to problems in the weaker economies in Europe, as I've been saying, and then on to the more developed parts of Europe, and then on to the United States and Canada. I mean, these are incredibly important trends, but the data surrounding it, the data that supports that, uh, many things happening in the stock market, but my point being so much of it's not being reported in the mainstream media or easily accessed through the mainstream media. That's why I really encourage you to go to Money Talks tweets, go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook or Mike's mikesmoneytalks.ca. That's where you'll get that information. You can do what you will with it. I just want to make sure you have it to be able to make informed decisions. And as I say, I really appreciate it that you support us here. You can click on the like buttons on the different uh, platforms, the subscription buttons on the different platforms that you listen to Money Talks on. But I really hope you encourage your friends, uh, maybe family members to tune into the different social media platforms because I think it's key to be more informed. That's all the time. As I say, I hope you have a terrific week.